Hey guys, it's me, Alex, from the future, and I'm dusting off this old chestnut because I forgot to tell you something. Please go to etsy.com slash shop inspired disorder. Throw another slash in there. There'll be a link at the website. Yay! If you type in the coupon code Alex with two X's, you get 10% off. And they're neat art. It's by Ray Taylor from Inspired Disorder. It's me, Alex, from the future. Etsy.com slash shop slash Inspired Disorder. It's me, Alex, from the future. I remember why I stopped doing this voice now. Well, that's right. Once you come down to the standard, that's right, the standard, that's right, the standard, facebook.com slash the standard pdx, that's right, the standard, 14 Northeast 22nd Ave, that's right, the standard. If you come down on a Monday night, you can get some kind of deal, Tuesday night, get some kind of deal, Wednesday night, dollar hams night, that's right, the standard. If you go on Sunday, you get $2 microbrews, that's right, the standard. So go to the standard, facebook.com slash the standard pdx, that's right, the standard, 14 Northeast 22nd Ave, that's located in beautiful beautiful Northeast Portland. That's right. The standard in Northeast Portland. The standard. That's right. The standard. The standard. The standard. The standard. The standard. I could have done that in effect, but I didn't. The standard. Facebook.com slash the standard PDX. Please click like. Okay, bye. Microscopic silico volcaniosis. That is the word that we sing. The monoultra microscopic silico volcaniconiosis. What is this magical thing? Well, I'm glad you asked in such a musical form. It's a lung disease caused by breathing in the silicate fibers of volcanoes. The silicate fibers of volcanoes? Shouldn't there be a smaller word? I know. There is, but I am sesquipedalian, and that's the thing where you overused large words when the smaller ones would have sufficed. But what's the smaller word? I don't know. I don't like musicals all that much. Hi, my name is Alex, and the only reason I just did that is because I just spent the last five minutes singing the Nomadoronto Microscopic Silicovacanaconiosis song. <laughs> There's something deeply, deeply wrong with me. So, uh, yes. This is the Alex cast. My name is Alex, and I am the one that's going to be doing the casting. This is, <clears throat> this might be, this is up there on the list of the most embarrassing ways I've ever started a show. There's a number of reasons for this, paramount of which is, I mean, obviously I can't sing uh, well at all. I don't even think I should say sing well at all. I can't sing at all. Like, well doesn't even come into it. I think singing well would connote that there's an, there's an attempt at singing in some kind of uh, accurate way. Like somehow my vocal cords are producing sounds that were attempted to be pleasant for human ears. This is like a, I, I'm insulting to the concept of song is, is what I'm going with. And then the second part is I had, <clears throat> I had no good rhyme scheme in there, which is kind of embarrassing uh, being, being a Hammersteinian as I am. <clears throat> I don't even know if that's the name of a guy. 
Roberts and Hammerstein? Is that the name? No, Rogers and Hammerstein. I know there's the Hammerstein Ballroom in New York because I've been there a whole bunch of times. Doesn't matter. Anyway, <clears throat> that was terrible. And now my voice feels weird. Hold on, I'm going to take a sip of soda. Damn. <clears throat> How do people sing? Am I doing it wrong? I mean, I don't mean, obviously... Obviously, I'm not singing well, you know, because I don't know how to hit notes or anything. But <clears throat> I don't think people's voices should go out so quickly, right? I don't, I don't know. <clears throat> I feel weird. Maybe I just have to quit. I'm going to quit the show right now. How do you... Your voice shouldn't go out. Oh, wait, now there it is. Is that the way my voice normally sounds? Oh, yeah. I talked through the... I talked through the nasal passage a lot more than I thought. I was trying to come from down... Like, <clears throat> I was trying to come from down here. I was trying to come from down here and not have any kind of, any kind of, uh, force through the, uh, through my nasal passage and, uh, it's not working at all. This is actually rather creepy and I feel like I'm, I'm like a transgender, um, professional wrestler. But yeah, wow. I didn't realize my voice was so kind of nasal. Fuck. All right. I quit again, which I guess. It's kind of like a negative multiplied by negative. So I think I'm back doing the show. Did you guys miss me? <laughs> My long hiatus. This is fucking bonkers already. All right, guys. So let me say a couple of things here right quickly. And this is not my normal plugs or whatever. Well, go to alexcast.com and click everything there. There's the Amazon link. Click it before you shop on Amazon. I get a percent. You don't pay extra. Uh, there's links to the books I've written, yada, yada. Just go there and click around. But what I wanted to tell you guys about is uh, is a man. A certain man. A certain man? Yes, that man. Uh, his name is Chris Reddy. And uh, he's a lovely man. And he has uh, been nice enough uh, to me over the years that I said, you know what, Chris Reddy? I'm going to reach out from across the internet. Give you a plug. That plug goes like this. Go to www. Period. The loudest geeks period com so yeah the uh, uh the loudest geeks.com and yeah if you like weirdo not weirdo what am i saying um like nerdy kind of pop culture podcasts you would very much like them uh so they're the terminology of the show is correct and by terminology i mean name because that's not the right term the nomenclature that's closer to the right word but that's not it the Title. I'm just going to go with title. I don't know why I have to be so sesquipedalian. And that, my friends, is how you draw it all right back to the beginning. Remember in the song? I, yeah. So go to theloudestgeeks.com and listen to them. They are funnier than me, and they talk about geek stuff. Though they're Canadian, so I'm not, you know, I'm not bagging on Canada, but, you know, I'm kind of bagging on Canada just a little bit. Speaking about Canada. And that, my friends, is called a segue. A segue. It's not a people mover, but a conversation starter. It's a segue. A segue. And now we're going to talk about Nazis. Um, oh, you know what? That's not that funny because, well, it's not that funny because it wasn't that funny, but I was going to say it's not that funny because uh, isn't that the sound of music that's got Nazis in it, right? And that's a very famous musical. Uh, I've not seen the sound of music. It is one of those things that I've not uh, seen in my life. That sounded like I was repeating myself. I, 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 what I mean to say is one of those, um, you know, those kind of classics that stick out that you've never seen. Um, 
you know, like if you've not seen, you know, The Godfather or something, which I forget what the story is on the show, but I've seen The Godfather, though I've often claimed that I haven't just because I find it amusing to do that. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so I've never seen The Sound of Music, and I think there's Nazis in there. I was I just ran into another another really famous movie that I've I've not seen. I'm trying to come up with it. And I don't think I'm going to be able to. Shit, if I think of it, I'll, I'll get back to you guys. Because I know you're at the edges of your seat saying, but Alex, we really want to know what this, this fucking movie was. Well, I don't know. Um, oh, one was The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. I've always thought I've seen it. Like, so much to the point that I've actually not watched it with the thought of, oh, I've, I've seen this before because it's such a famous movie. But, um, I yeah, I was I was... I don't know, a Netflix or something. I don't know. I saw some reference to it somewhere. So I was just reading the description. I'm like, this doesn't actually sound all that familiar to me. And then I read like more of the description and looked at the, some of the pictures. I'm like, fuck, I've never seen this movie. So um, that's why I do musical numbers. Anyway, back to the Nazis and back to Canada. So Canadian Nazi Martin J. Clemens. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I just realized I've called him Goebbels on the show before. And for some reason, every fucking time he comes up, I, all right, sorry. Wonderful man who would never hurt anybody. And I mean, that seriously, he's a fucking class act. Martin J. Clemens from Paranormal People Online. Uh, I referenced him on the show before. He is the fellow that wrote the article for Mysterious Universe that referenced Periphery, the novel I wrote. So that was cool. And yeah, so he, um, posted this story. This is, this is actually from quite a while ago. This is from 2001, but uh, he was supposed to, I was asking the audience, which I ask every week, um, if anybody has any kind of topics you'd like to hear me cover and, um, you can answer those. You can, you can find me on Twitter at the Alex cast and say, Hey, Alex, I want to hear you talk about this or call 503-468-6959, 503-468-6959. I remember that off the top of my head. I'm very proud. So yeah, I asked and he said, uh, no, he didn't say, I'm sorry, uh, at Last Bone Stands, our friend Mike, who's been on the show before, had uh, asked for me to talk about the Wunderwaffe, or um, the Nazi bell. So, let me read the story. Or, well, not the whole thing, but, yeah. So, anyway, this is from Paranormal People Online, so. Secret facilities hidden deep in northern Germany, leaked into classified documents. Anecdotal evidence, urban legend, all of it pointing in one direction. Die Glocke, the bell, is believed to have been Nazi Germany's wonder weapon. I just skipped around uh, on there because one, that voice wasn't very convincing. Two, um, the screen's a little bit far away to read. But anyway, um, embarrassingly enough, I had not heard of this before and... You know, what's weird is that when I make reference to knowing really obscure shit, uh, uh, like, you know, Nazi occultism or something, I refer to it as being embarrassing. If I don't know about a certain part of Nazi occultism or Nazi, you know, weaponry, I refer to it as being embarrassing. What I've set up for myself here is what's called a no-win situation. And I feel like that works because that's, uh, I think that's the, how does one put it? I think I think that's a a beautiful mirror to the universe which is set up in that i can't win i might as well set up my own life to mirror the universe to great to quote the, the the great aphorism of 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 the ancient chemetans you say as above so below mirroring the universe on your own soul the universe reaching its hand out and saying alex you will fail at everything there's no way to win 
And I say, universe, watch me. I will fail in such spectacular fashion. It will be called a success. I will bring down the fucking walls of the universe with how badly I fail. The explosions will be heard from Valhalla to the big fucking bang. That got a little weird. So anyway, I haven't heard about this thing before. And, um, well, and let's find out what it is. The idea goes like this. Read the article on paranormalpeopleonline.com. I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but essentially it is this kind of secret Nazi weapon that has been theorized to have existed. The weapon is possibly a time travel machine. So uh, the story comes from, actually, let's see. Oh, I should have done... Well, it's not that... I, I mean, I read the whole article. I just didn't remember. Anyway, yeah. So, uh, some uh, Polish dude talked to a... Um, kind of a... The Polish guy is uh, Witkowski. Um, he uh, found uh, another Polish guy that was working on the program. In about, I, think he, I think Martin says 1997. And he told him about this secret thing. And there's documents hidden here. And, you know, the, the same the same story of every every bit of uh hidden technology occult stuff with the nazis you know like the well we saw one pic we saw a photo of the flying saucer that can be powered by vril energy or you know uh i don't know if i said you know at the end there was a accurate thing because i don't know how many people know that uh there's a conspiracy theory that the nazis invented uh, essentially what we would call a flying saucer and it ran on an energy system called vril energy v-r-i-l-l -L. You can look that up because I ain't talking about that today. Anyway, so uh, the same story is that hidden documents, blah, blah, blah. This guy tracks somebody down. This, somebody talks about the thing. And the idea is that it's either, uh, at least the way Martin uh, puts it here, I don't know if he's just using these as examples, if there's more uh, examples. I just don't want to misconstrue his article. But anyway, he refers to anti-gravity or uh, time travel as uh, the kind of possible candidates for this strange bit of equipment. Now, obviously, I'm not well-versed in this story. But I would, uh, I would, I would say a couple things here. Not I would say, will say a couple things here because uh, we like grammar and accuracy. I don't really like grammar that much, but I do like accuracy. We all know that's a lie as well. So, anti-gravity. Sip. I don't, hmm, how does one, um... The understanding of gravity isn't. That's the best way to put it. Uh, uh, we don't know what gravity is, essentially. We, we can describe it. We know how it works. But one of the great mysteries of physics is why is gravity such a weak force? Um, there's... Uh, it, I'm going to... Oh, God, I shouldn't do this, but I will try to remember back when I actually was someone that believed in science. And not that I don't believe in science, but I actually was much more into it. There's uh, four fundamental forces in the universe there's electromagnetism the weak nuclear force the strong nuclear force and gravitation uh, sure anyway the weak nuclear force and strong nuclear force and uh, uh 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 it's not electromagnetism it's whatever the point is of those gravity is the weakest but it's everywhere so the concept is they think it might be if we're living in one of those um um multi-dimensional universes as is posited by by physics the reason the gravity is so weak is it actually crosses over all of the dimensions so it's actually the reason it's the the strongest force it, it's actually the strongest force because it is multi-dimensional 
I do all this to say it's a poorly understood part of nature and part of uh, the universe or whatever. If Nazi scientists or any scientists had figured out anti-gravity, I think the knowledge that it would take to to build the, the thing to be anti-gravitic, there's just I don't think there's enough. How do, how am I, it's sorry that's kind of it would it would be as if um in 1895 they built an atomic weapon. 1895 might be a little too. Let's say 1850, they built an atomic weapon, where atomic theory wasn't well understood. At least I think not. So whatever year atomic theory really like got it down, like to the point that we can start positing, uh, you know, how to split an atom, yada yada. But it would be as if somebody invented the nuclear bomb before we understood the fundamental forces to create it. So in order to create anti-gravitics, we would need to understand gravity a lot better. So unless the Nazis were building on something ridiculously advanced that somehow didn't come out after the war. I don't think anti-gravity is possible in that context. Maybe now it is in our, in our current understanding that maybe we did have some physics breakthrough. You know, they, they say the black world is, you know, 30 years in advance of the, of the stuff we know about. So maybe, maybe they do have anti-grav now, but the point is I don't think it's anti-grav now time travel. Martin uh, does a very good job of describing uh, one of the ways that time travel could work. Essentially you go back in time uh, if you guys are familiar with the grandfather paradox, essentially, is it possible to go back in time and kill your grandfather? Um, if you went back in time and killed your grandfather, your grandfather would never have your father, would never have, your father would never have you, therefore you couldn't have gone back and killed your grandfather. Boom. Grandfather paradox. Uh, one of the ways around this paradox, well, there's multiple ways around this paradox. One is kind of, one is this, essentially, this is kind of, um, it goes into, I don't know what branch of physics you call it. Like, I, th I guess M theory deals with it. But anyway, it's multidimensional physics or whatever that, or maybe not even multi. Shut up, Alex. You go back in time, you kill your grandfather, and then the universe is fine. You, like, there's, there is a universe that now splits off at that moment that there's now just a universe where your grandfather died and that's it. Uh, and then you continue living on in the universe with your dead grandparent you know, like it just, it's just a split. So it allows for it. <clears throat> There's another theory. Uh, one that I kind of ascribe to is that, and I don't know even if this is physics or this is, if this is fiction and I don't know if I came up with it, but, uh, time travel is allowed by essentially it's the universe just fixes itself. <laughs> like, you don't get worried, like, you know, they say time's a stream that, you know, you can't enter the same stream twice. You know, that's kind of the, like the, the reference of the flow of time. Well, if you throw a rock in upstream, the, you know, by the time it gets to you again, the, the, the ripples have dissipated and there's no sign of it. The river heals itself. I think time in the universe would be very much like that. So, so if something goes back in time, it would just be like, like a body healing itself or it would just, there would be some kind of like causal loop that would happen for a second. And then it would just heal itself. It'd go, yeah, we're good. Don't even worry about it. And then it would move forward and it would just be this weird universe where there's a bit of logic that doesn't make sense in one specific case. Like how did someone go back and well, cause someone went back and killed them, killed them and that person exists. So they go back to the future and then it's just, he doesn't have proof. He, he, you know, he's a, he's a bit of matter that came from nowhere and the universe just kind of heals itself. It, 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 it the, the bullet hole starts, you know, 
starts getting filled in with scar tissue and boom, everything's perfect. Nothing hurts. So those are the two. The problem with these two and the problem with most time travel is this, is that there's no way to prove you did it if time is affected in that way. If time is affected in a way that it can kind of heal itself, yeah, you can prove it because you can, you know, I don't know, grab some shit from the past or whatever. And like, you know, you wouldn't cause some kind of horrible damage to the space-time continuum. But I, if you did something major enough, the kind of means of the universe fixing itself, I think would disallow for proof of it because, you know, you want it like systems work in a way that it's the simplest solution is, you know, it's the easiest way to do things. So if you go back and do something major, no, I think I just disproved my own thing. Anyway, the point is if you went back and like, let's say the Nazis actually had time travel and went back and had the third Reich win, it wouldn't matter because if they went back and the Third Reich had won, a universe would split off and went to Third Reich won, but we're not living in that universe. If if they went back and the Third Reich had won, and we're and obviously we're not like, but if we lived in the universe where they did win, we would never know. I don't think there would be a way to know, except for the people. I think just except for the one time traveler, because by the time he got back, no, maybe history wouldn't be rewritten. Well, long story short, they didn't have time travel. Shut up. The amount of power that it would take to time travel is ridiculous. The best theory for time travel that allows within physics right now is essentially like uh, the CERN collider, the collider, the Large Hadron Collider at CERN is an example of this, is that if you have a machine that's in continual operation from now until, you know, Judgment Day, um, not Judgment Day, that would be bad, but now and for a while, and that machine can, uh, you know, shoot high high speed particles around itself you just you know really 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 fast so it starts basically um di time dilation happens within the confines of it is that you could actually send like kind of morse code you can send data backwards by you know as long as the machine's on so if the machine's on 20 years from now you can put it in the machine essentially code it in and go like do 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 and because of time dilation that message would arrive well before it was sent so you you could receive the messages in the past and then since you're in the past, you can send it forward readily because, you know, you're in the past. You just go like, like if I send something to myself in the past, I see a message that says, hey, Alex, I'm in the future in 20 years. And I go, holy shit, I got a message from the future. And then my future self will go, oh, shit, I just remember reading the message I sent back, you know. So, uh, but the amount of uh, the amount of power we take and the amount of technology, don't think it's possible. But it's an interesting story anyway. And um, Wunderwaffe is a really great term. You gotta love it. Speaking of Martin J. Clemens, so I uh, asked everybody uh, last week on the show to, um, well, not, I didn't ask everybody last week on the show. Sorry, I was trying to bring something up. Uh, I was asking people on Twitter at the Alice Cast if they could please uh, uh, call in with their questions and their comments and whatever, because, well, let's face it, I don't have shit to talk about. So, but, uh, Going against his better judgments, we had a call from Mr. Martin J. Clements, so let us play that. Hi there, uh, Alex. It's me, Martin J. Clements, from ParanormalPeopleOnline.com, eh? Call him because I wanted to give you a piece of my mind. Usually I write letters, but as you know, the paper drought has hit Canada pretty hard this year, eh? I just want to tell you that these guys from the Whatcast are a bunch of hosers who don't know what they're talking about, and I would love to see them on the ice someday. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to get so worked up, eh? 
Well, thanks. Well, I thank you, Martin J. Clemens. I very much appreciate you calling in. Uh, Martin has been uh, kind of reticent to come on the show or come on the Whatcaster Mine or pretty much anybody that's asked because he doesn't feel that he's uh, great at speaking, you know, off the cuff. He's a much better writer. But I thought you did very well on that phone call. And I appreciate you choosing the Alex cast over the Whatcast because, I mean, let's face it, they are a bunch of hosers. Um, I didn't like how just viscerally angry you got at the end of that call there. Um, I, I mean, I know, I know Canadians are, are known to be kind of violent hockey playing types, but whew, that was, that was tough to listen to. And frankly, I feel bad for the podcast right now. We got another call. Hey, Alex Cast. <clears throat> hey, how's it going? Uh, this is Nate. Uh, I like to call in and leave voice messages on the Alex Cast whenever you prompt people to do that on Facebook. Um, I was just calling to say, hey, the Alex cast is just as mediocre as you um, say it is, and that I think you should get Viso uh, to sponsor the Alex cast because I just I think Viso is a delicious uh, energy slash vitamin drink, um, and it really helps me do well all day long. All right, have fun. Bye. Well, thank you, Nate, and I do believe that Viso should sponsor the show. Many times in the early episodes of the Alex cast, I referenced the fact that I was drinking a Viso whilst, whilst, uh, what do you call this? Podcasting. I love Viso. Viso, if you don't know, you live outside of uh, Oregon, and I think they're in California and probably some Washington as well, but is a, is a, quote, energy drink. It's essentially a vitamin drink with a bunch of caffeine in it. So it's like a drinking a multivitamin, but with caffeine. And it is, uh, it's delicious, and I very much like it, so thumbs up to the people at Viso. If you want to sponsor the show, get in touch with me. But thank you, Nathan, for calling in, and I just would like to say one thing. This show can't be as mediocre as I think it is, because there's no fucking way out to get listeners. I think the term mediocre is actually wrong, because I, I personally think everything I do is a, what I like to call a rolling pile of shit. Like a like a Dung Beetles collection. So it can't possibly be that bad, or you guys wouldn't be here listening to me. Let's listen to another call from at Robots Eat Vegans, AJ Marquez. I didn't prepare. I forgot what I was going to say. Oh, boy. That's a good one. I did my first mic in uh, Portland last night. That was... Quiet. Like I thought it over, I got all I got all up in my head about it afterwards. I was I was okay up on stage. I mean, like I'm not saying I did good. I'm saying I wasn't extremely nervous, which is why I haven't done any mics in Salem. It's AJ, by the way. Um, why I haven't done any mics in Portland is because I'm afraid of Portland. I always just do mics in Salem. So I did a mic in Portland last night, and uh, I wasn't ridiculously nervous and it was a very quiet room and I was like oh man well I didn't do great oh well shit happens and then like today uh, I listen to my recording of it because I record all of my sets because I'm afraid anyways so I record all my sets uh, listen to my recording of my set because I had been thinking like okay well you know 
towards the end of the night, like I was the very last guy. There was a comedy show before the mic. Like, there's, you know, probably next to no one there. I probably just wasn't paying attention. And then I listened to my set, you know, and the dead silence that went on during my set. And uh, there were, there was, there was a lot of people there. They did not make any noise while I was talking. They were respectful in that manner. But uh, at the end, when uh, Dan Weber was like, all right, guys, give it up for AJ. Thanks for coming out to the mic. Lots of applause. Lots of people being like, hey, we're here. We're doing the obligatory clapping thing. But as far as me, nope, not, not, I am not killing it in my, uh, my, my comedy game, good sir. Not killing it, not one bit. You don't say. Um, what else do we have? Clean my yard a little bit today because I don't have a job, so I just got to do busy work to make it look like I'm doing something so that my mom doesn't kick me out. 27, live at home because my mom's got a lot of food. Why would I want to go somewhere else? Also, washer and dryer in my room. Boom. Who smells good all the time? This motherfucker. Except when he's stuck in Portland for a couple days. Then he doesn't smell that great. That was the weekend before last. Went to Chopsticks last night. Did not sing. Jumped on uh, Dave Mascaro's back. Not actually jumped on it. Anyways, he was singing, I wanted to steal some of his limelight. This is what I do. I'm a limelight thief. I'm stealing your limelight right now. You're like, hey, I got this limelight. And I'm like, no. No, you don't. I'm going to take it. Who are you? This is your show. Why am I talking? Huh? Stealing. I'm a thief. Violent thief. Just give me that. Give me, give me all them limelights. Get it. You, you can't have shit. None of this. Go to bed, Alex. Thank you, AJ. So from what I uh, gathered from that, what I'm going to call loosely English that you left, is that you're dating someone named Mike in Portland, and that you're really big into Rush's living in the limelight. I had three minutes to think of something much funnier than that, and I didn't come up with shit. Whoops. But thank you for calling in, and I think you are a lovely man, despite... The fact that, oh, God damn it, you talked about doing your yard and you're Mexican. I could have made a Mexican joke. I know that sounds, it sounds like I'm being racist there. I'm not. Well, I mean, I am, but I'm not being racist because I actually have anything wrong with Mexicans. Is that I grew up on the East Coast and I didn't know any. So I actually didn't know any of the Mexican stereotypes until I moved out here. Um, the fact that there's a lazy Mexican thing is very confusing to me because it seems like they're an industrious people. I, I don't really understand how these things work. So I'm kind of... I'm just kind of like working on how to introduce more kind of stereotyping and hatred into my life because I feel like that's what I need to take that next step into eventual suicide. Thank you. On that note, we have uh, another call in from uh, Sarah at Veg E Vixen. Actually, I think she says that on this phone call, so yeah. Hi, Alex. It's Sarah, a.k.a. Veg E. Dixon. Could you tell us about your favorite, most influential authors? You know what, Sarah? I can tell you about my favorite, most influential authors. Not only can I tell you, I will. Dramatic pause. So, favorite authors. As many of you know, I am a writer. I have a book out called Periphery. It's a novel. I actually have another book out called The Void Sutras, which is a collection of poems and short stories. When 
I got that message earlier today, I started to think about, you know, what, what my influential writers or whatever. So let me point you in this direction. Uh, I answered a question similar to that, though not on the air, <clears throat> for a blog called Five Reads Blog. So it's five re five reads blog dot wordpress bleh. Jesus Christ, Alex. Five reads blog dot wordpress dot com. And uh, yes, it is a lovely site where this fellow asked for people to submit their five, you know, influential books uh, and then talk about them a little bit. So I did that a few months ago and um, it's there. So I'm going to put the uh, link to my article my uh, five reads in the show notes for this show, right under the Nazi bell uh, story. The, um, so anyway, yes, the answers I gave on there, which I'm not going to read all the answers, but I'll tell you the ones I listed. Uh, one is, uh, Richard Brodigan in watermelon sugar, Rogers, Lasney, the Chronicles of Amber, JD Salinger, nine stories, JD Salinger, Franny and Zooey. I know I say Zooey and it's Zoe. Fuck you. And Haruki Murakami, hard boiled wonderland in the end of the world. So, <clears throat> Let's discuss this a little bit. Roger motherfucking Zelazny. Shout out, Holmes. Because people still say Holmes and shout out because, as we all know, it's 1987 and uh, we are listening to K-Rock. I digress. Uh, it was uh, Zelazny, my brother, got me into reading. I was re I've been a reader since I was like a wee little kid. I, I, I you know, I remember the book fair when... Um, whatever the the children's book company would come to school with their little book card. It was, was one of the most exciting days of the year. And um, saying that out loud does does really paint the picture of how I ended up here. But, uh, oh God, I love the book fair. So I've been reading since back in, back in the day. The first thing I started to read a lot of was, uh, was uh, R.L. Stein, the Fear Street books. Not that those are any good. I was just of the age and I thought they were kind of neat. You know, adolescent horror i suppose you'd call them but uh, you know when i was a little kid I, I thought like oh this is so cool that's what like you know teenagers are like but the first kind of um <clears throat> i guess adult writing that i like not adult but you know uh, somewhat mature writing that i liked it was elasny and that uh, my eldest brother craig got me into that and he did these it's a series of 10 books well series of five books and then another series of five books the first five are much better but uh, called the Chronicles of Amber, or at least maybe they kind of, after the fact, they kind of bound them together and called it the Chronicles of Amber. But the first book is called Nine Princes in Amber. And uh, if you read that, that is one of the kind of, there's there's a lot of tips of the hat to, uh, to Nine Princes in Amber in periphery. And uh, not in, I mean, I don't know if it, you would actually pick up on that unless I told you. But if you've read Nine Princes and Amber, go back in your head to there. There's spots in Periphery where I directly kind of referenced it. But uh, yeah, that was the one that really got me reading first. <clears throat> so just that's important. So I put it there. And then that kind of just started the rolling storm of reading fucking everything from that point on. You know, that was probably when I was, uh, I, you know, I couldn't even fucking tell you. Uh, 12, maybe 11, 10. Craig might be able to tell you, I don't know, but Craig is my oldest brother. I forget if I called him by name, but, uh, yeah. So it's the last name. High school, I got really into Kerouac and the beats. Um, that was super important to me. Not a lot to say about that. I think everybody did that. 
From there, I got into Bukowski and Fonte Baudelaire from Bukowski, uh, Fonte Baudelaire, both, you know, kind of influences from him. Uh, Ginsburg, Ferlinghetti, and uh, just, you know, all the beats and the kind of the related beats and the kind of sub beats and the, and the binaural beats and all that shit. So uh, that was a huge part of my life. And then I got really into like English writers for a bit and I uh, got into kind of weird fiction, whatever. So, but moving forward, when asked about kind of the the writers that influenced me the most or my favorite writers, it's kind of hard for me to answer because some of my favorite writers are writers that as a, as a writer myself, some of the things I like to read the most, I guess is the way to put it, wouldn't be things that I would say are my favorite writers. Um, like I, I love, um, I love Frank Herbert, the guy that wrote Dune. I, I love those books. I'm actually rereading them right now. I wouldn't, and I guess I would say he's like one of my favorite writers, but not in a, not in a, I'd recommend him way. It's in a, it's almost because I can't be influenced by it, that it it's almost like more relaxing to me. Like I wouldn't want to write the way that he writes and I, and I do enjoy it very much, but I think some of the enjoyment is kind of the relaxation of like, I don't have to be on my guard about kind of copying his style. Um, so that's kind of half an answer. Uh, the other half the answer, and these are the, the next few are the ones that I did have to worry about copying their style while I was writing the Void Sutras or writing the poems and the short stories that were uh, becoming the Void Sutras, I kind of figured out what my prose voice was like. It wasn't fully there yet, but I, I the the inklings were happening. Before that, I was only written, um, you know, uh, I'd written kind of blog posts and uh, poetry. I never really went into fiction. I, you know, I wrote a couple short stories in college for, I went to college for writing, so you kind of had to write some prose. But for the most part, it, you know, I wrote poetry. And, um, I started to kind of understand what my, what my prose voice was like. And I found J.D. Salinger. I'd never read him before. And, uh, I read nine stories and I was fucking blown away. And I read Franny and Zooey and I know I'm saying it wrong. And I was blown away. And then I read, hey, Race High the Roof Beans Carpenter featuring Seymour. And I was, you know, it's, hey, that's, that was all right. But, uh, I, uh, nine stories and Franny and Zooey, I think are, uh, more so Zooey than Franny. I like Franny, but uh, Zooey I like better. I think they're the best short stories I've ever written. Uh, the first and the last of nine stories, one is called The Perfect Day for Banana Fish, and the last one's called Teddy. And I think those two are probably the best short stories ever. I'm, they're just, they're fucking magical. Uh, they're, they're just so fucking good. Especially A Perfect Day for Banana Fish, it, it's mind alteringly beautiful it's so nuanced there's there's so much depth and there's so much action that's done off screen and off screen's the wrong off page there's so much information imparted without him actually saying any of it there's so much just nuance and depth to the characters and the scene that when you're done reading it you know so much but if you went back and looked like just actual contextually it's not there but it's there somehow it's it's going back to an author I forgot the reference, Phil K. Dick. Like, it's Valis. Like, he fucking, Salinger downloads some shit in your head, you know? It almost reminds me of Hemingway a little bit, which Hemingway I was kind of influenced by, too, because I used to, re and I still like writing really complicated sentences, like lots of periods and, like, asides, and lots of periods, lots of commas and asides, and, you know, kind of, um, we walk to the store, comma, 
quickly, but not too quickly, comma, you know, kind of throwing little, I forget what they're called, but I just, I refer to them as asides, but like, I, I used to be really overly complex, complicated fucking sentences, and I thought that was good writing, and I read Hemingway, and I realized, like, the, the, the simple voice is better, you know, what he got across, and Salinger has that as well, and the kind of combination thereof made me realize, like, a certain kind of, a certain kind of complex simplicity, a certain kind of, uh, you know, you don't have to tell every fucking fact. So, um, yeah, Salinger was just a huge influence. I, I hate um, Catcher in the Rye, by the way. It's a garbage book. Uh, I realized if you read it while you're young, I, you disagree with me. But if you read that as an adult, which unfortunately I did, it's it's not that great. It's, it's yeah, it's, I'm sure, it's, you know, it's one of those things. Like, I read, I read, um, I read uh, On the Road when I was, you know, age appropriate to read On the Road. I think at my age, I'm 33 now. If I read On the Road at 33 for the first time, I would be like, these guys are just assholes. I don't think it would speak to me at all. You know, it's one of those, you know, who knows? It's hard to tell. Maybe, maybe just, you know, maybe just Catcher didn't speak to me, but it seemed to be one of those things where I caught it at the wrong time. But yeah. Anyway, uh, Salinger, very important to me. And then from, so Salinger is kind of, his influence on the way right, but like, it's far enough back that it's not there. I had gotten my voice down a little bit. I sort of, I sort of knew how I wanted to write, what I wanted to write about. I'd started to kind of come back into my own about some of the things I'm interested in and what I felt I could bring into my work. And I started to, essentially like for a long time, I, like I used to write a lot of kind of, um, I, I don't want, I keep using the word occult, to mean this odd kind of thing that I'm into, but which is the wrong word, but it's, there's no better word, Fortean, uh, which I don't, I mean, I like that word, but I don't feel like it fits quite right. Uh, kind of some kind of pseudo-spiritual Fortean science odd thing. But anyway, I'd started to kind of let that come back into my writing. And I read uh, Haruki Murakami's Hardboiled Wonderland and, um, wait, what's the actual? Hardboiled Wonderland and the End of the World. And I went, oh, fuck, I can never read this guy again. Because I realized, like, this, like, one, his style very much mimics mine. I mean, obviously, he came first. But what I mean is, or mine mimics his. I don't want to say mine mimics his because I hadn't read it before that. It's not like, it's not like I copped his style. It's just we kind of came at something simultaneously. And I'm certainly not saying you'd confuse me with, actually, I think there's parts of Periphery that if you read out of context, if someone told you, if someone didn't tell you, or if someone said, here, read this uh, bit of a Murakami book, I think some yeah, there's parts that could be convinced. But anyway, um, and I went, oh, fuck, I can't read this because this is going to, like, all, I'm just going to steal from him. And I don't mean purposefully. It's it's uh, Jim Norton, the comedian, says, like, he doesn't watch comedies, and he tries not to watch uh, people's stand-up sets unless he's there because he just, he's afraid he's going to, like, forget, and it's going to seep into his, you know, subconscious, like, fall asleep while watching an episode of some comedy, and the next thing you know, you've, quote-unquote, written a joke that you subconsciously stole, you know, and I, I worried about that, so Mirakami sat in the back, kind of the back of my conscious for a while, and I put out the Void Sutras, and while I'm putting out the Void Sutras, I found Richard Brodigan, and Richard Brodigan was the revelation I needed, and it was the way I wanted to write but like a shade off, like it was, it honestly, 
there's almost it's so it's so hard to explain it's 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 as if i don't yeah i, I don't know how to word it. it's 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 almost like he was put there as a teacher for me like like this is something like i needed to go through a curriculum on broadigan before i got to like the final and not to say that my 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 tone as a writer is finalized could heaven fucking forbid but when when i read some of his stuff it was in watermelon sugar was the one that did it when i read his stuff i went oh that's it like that was the that was the bridge between poetry and and prose that i was trying to find and i'd written a bunch of it like the voice sutras like the quote-unquote prose stuff there's a couple traditional prose pieces in there but for the most part they're kind of prosy poems and brodigan did it in a way that's more like a homey prose like there's a lyricism to it but not being lyrical it's very hard to describe read Brodigan, read in watermelon sugar it's one of the most beautiful things you'll ever read it's I, I i adore it i've read it i don't know that there's a book i've read more than in watermelon sugar i i fucking love that book but um when i read him he was he was the kind of the bridge that i went oh okay i kind of that's the way i can do it like not because i'd been doing it before and it's not like i sound like Brodigan in any writing like actually perforate name check Brodigan and you know he's a he's a big influence but like it was kind of the thing that went, oh, okay, that's sort of, that's the technique. It's almost, you know, it's almost, you know, it's almost like finding out about a, you know, a, 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 I don't, I don't have any kind of, uh, like, if you're trying to make a new style of sword, like you're, you're a blacksmith and you find somebody that like uses this technique of like folding steel and you're like, that's the thing I've needed to make this other thing. And this other thing is nothing like the blacksmith you found the folding from, but you use the folding. You kind of understood that that was a that was kind of a part of a greater thing that you're working on. And uh, so yeah, I did that, and I put out void sutures. And at that point, I was really uh, you know I was kind of far enough into periphery that I was like you know now that kind of I have brought again in my head a little bit, I'm like I should go back to that Mirakami guy. And uh, I read I don't remember what the next book I read was, and I went oh fuck that's it because. I already kind of wrote in the style and then taking that Brodigan-y thing and then kind of com combining that with Murakami, I went, oh, fuck, that's my voice. Like, not that those two guys, but those two guys as the as the folder of steel, as the as the metallurgist that shows me a technique. Those are the ones that went, oh, fuck, you give me permission now. I, I get what I can do here. And I still haven't taken. I still haven't taken full advantage of that permission that I was given. Um. I think periphery was definitely a lot of the way there. There's a lot of like kind of poem aspects in periphery. There's a lot of prose stuff. There's a ton of like kind of, uh, you know, religious and spiritual metaphor kind of overlaid on a weird universe and, and it's there. And I think that book, is, that book is, I mean, I'm rereading it now. It's actually pretty fucking good. There's time I'm rereading, taking notes to try to uh, figure out what I can do better and what I can, you know, kind of build upon for the next book. And I realize there's a lot of stuff that, uh, there's a lot of like, I mean, it's basically it's a good book is what I'm saying. I'm not trying to sell you on it. I am trying to sell you on it. But in this case, I kind of sold myself on it while I was rereading because I found myself going like, I was like, oh, fuck, I haven't, I haven't been, I've been reading this book for pleasure the past five pages, you know, like I'm not taking notes and that's a really cool sign. So, uh, Murakami and, um, brought again. And yeah, there's the, I don't know if I explained that well, but it's, the hard boat wonderland uh and, and the end of the world is 
it's so i don't want to say surreal but it's so like it is a combination of uh kind of fantasy elements mixed with real elements and that's that's very broad again as well um and then there's just this kind of there's this bit of poetry that's in broad again i mean he, he came from a poetry background as well i mean he writes poetry at least so yeah i don't know i this is, I don't know if what I just said made sense because I'm not trying to say I lifted their style. It's just, I, I feel like their style gave me permission to to go further. And that's where Periphery is. And then <clears throat> now, because Periphery went over a lot better than I thought it would. I mean, on the fact that like no one fucking read it, but the people that did read it really reacted well to it. And the things I was afraid of, no one seemed to have been scared off by. Um, like the section with Broad again, no one seemed to give a shit. Like no one went, Alex this is like one of the weirder things that's ever happened in a book, you know? Um, maybe not that section. There's a lot of weird things in that book, but a lot of things that I was like kind of afraid of didn't, didn't come to light. So now that I'm writing the next one, the next one's a little bit more of a traditional novel, but um, I, I have so much, I have so much less fear about the things that I can get away with that just kind of skill wise. I'm like, Oh, I know this is something that works, you know? And those were, you know, kind of that ability was given to me by, you know, by fucking Prodigan and Murakami. Mostly Murakami on some level because it's a fucking bestseller and his books are weird as shit, you know? And it's like, oh, well, if, if I, this dude's weird as shit books so well, you know, my weird as shit book can sell well, you know? I, I, I fucking take the Pepsi goddamn challenge. If you like Murakami, read Periphery. It's, it's you know, it, I, not that, not the... Let me kind of take that back one step. Not the the Sputnik sweethearts and the um, uh, what's what's the other kind of more normal one? Uh, uh, Norwegian Wood maybe I forget. There's a few that are kind of more normal, but like the Kafka on the Shore, the the Hardware Wonderland, um, um, the um, what's the other one that's like super weird? Um, oh, I can't think of the name of it. Um. Oh, it doesn't matter. There, there's there's one where, like, these group of kids kind of go still for a while. Oh, that's Kafka on the Shore, isn't it? Either way, go with Kafka on the Shore. The weird ones. I would fucking know. If anybody likes a weird style of Murakami, read Periphery. And it, you, you'll like it. You will. And I don't, I, you know, it's a weird thing to say, but I, I think I think there's a... In the way that Broadigan kind of led to both me and Murakami, and I don't even know if Murakami's read Broadigan, and I probably would have gotten here without Broadigan. I mean, in that way, that if you like Broadigan, you can go there, and if you like Murakami, I think you can come to me, and that's that. So, talking about Murakami, this is in Watermelon Sugar. I broke it out when uh, when uh, Sarah called the show. Um, yeah, five or three, four, six, eight, six, nine, five, nine. So call, leave a message. You can leave in upwards of three minutes, but don't, you know. And, you know, don't prattle on. Uh, so <clears throat> I just want to read you the first section of Watermelon Sugar. And you'll probably understand this is one thing that I think uh, I got directly from In Watermelon Sugar, or from Brodigan for Periphery, is the shortness of the chapters. Um, I was trying to, hold on one second. The original concept for Periphery, and it, it isn't there in the end. I mean, some of it's there, but what I was trying to do at first, and I realized you can't do it for a novel. I'm going to try it again but for like kind of something more of a like novella size is that for every chapter i wanted to be read kind of it could be read by itself it's just you know it's it's a prose poem in and of itself and kind of 
not too long into writing it, I realized this is this is untenable because there's too many things you have to set up to make it make sense. So, but there are parts. But I tried to keep them short and kind of that they can stand on their own a little bit. That yeah, they're definitely related to the other stuff, and yeah, it definitely like builds the story. It's moving the plot forward. But there is, I wanted to leave it a certain amount of. You could just pull this part out and go, oh, this is a cool prose piece. So like any given chapter, oh, this is a cool prose piece. No, it's not every chapter because it's a fucking novel. So at some point it's like, you know, you can't, you in order to get the plot moving forward, you know, blah, blah, blah. Brought into that too. So anyway, this is uh, the first thing for me to Watermelon and Sugar. I'm going to butcher this, I'm sure. But anyway, <clears throat> so uh, in Watermelon Sugar, in Watermelon Sugar, the deeds were done and done again as my life is done in Watermelon Sugar. I'll tell you about it because I am here and you are distant. Wherever you are, we must do the best we can. It is so far to travel, and we have nothing here to travel except watermelon sugar. I hope this works out. I live in a shack near Eye-Death. I can see Eye-Death out the window. It is beautiful. I can also see it with my eyes closed and touch it. Right now it is cold and turns like something in the hand of a child. I do not know what that thing could be. There's a delicate balance in eye death. It suits us. The shack is small, but pleasing and comfortable. As my life. And made from pine. Watermelon sugar and stones. That's just about everything here is. Our lives we have carefully constructed from watermelon sugar, and then traveled to the length of our dreams, along roads lined with pines and stones. I have a bed, a chair, a table, and a large chest that I keep my things in. I have a lantern that burns watermelon oil at night. That is something else. I'll tell you about it later. I have a gentle life. I go to the window and look out again. The sun is shining at the long edge of a cloud. It is Tuesday, and the sun is golden. I can see piney woods and the rivers that flow from those piney woods. The rivers are cold and clear and there are trout in the rivers. Some of the rivers are only a few inches wide. I know a river that is half an inch wide. I know it because I measured it and sat beside it for a whole day. It started raining in the middle of the afternoon. We call everything a river here. We're that kind of people. I can see the fields of watermelons and the rivers that flow through them. There are many bridges in the piney woods and in the fields of watermelons. There is a bridge in front of this shack. Some of the bridges are made of wood, old, and stained silver like rain, and some of the bridges are made of stone gathered from a great distance and built in order of that distance, and some of the bridges are made from watermelon sugar. I like those bridges best. We make a great many things out of watermelon sugar here. I'll tell you about it, including the book being written near eye death. All this will be gone into, traveled, in watermelon sugar. How fucking awesome is that? Let's go back to the beginning, because I... One, yeah, I didn't do the best job reading it, but it's great. In Watermelon Sugar, the deeds were done, and done again, as my life is done in Watermelon Sugar. I'll tell you about it because I am here, and you are distant. That's fucking beautiful. You're not going to get a much better line than, In Watermelon Sugar, the deeds were done, and done again, as my life is done in Watermelon Sugar. You're not going to get much better opening lines than that. I, fucking call me Ishmael can blow me. That's a fucking beautiful opening. So... That is the wonderful Richard Brodigan in a watermelon sugar. I love it as I love no one else. I am, uh, yeah. So 
And that is that. That is the end of the phone calls. Thank you very much, Mr. AJ Marquez at Robots Eat Vegans, Mr. Nathan Stillhorn uh, at I don't know what your Twitter thing is, and at Sarah, whatever your last name is, uh, at um, Veg E Vixen. Hooray, huzzah, thumbs up. The queen is risen again. Uh, yeah, so, oh, we're almost at the end here. Oh, cool. Okay, so I have one more thing for y'all, and we will go. You might remember last week or two weeks ago or the week before that or the week before that one, we had our English friend, Thomas Kale, at Thomas Kale. Um, wrote, uh, not wrote, and he sent in a little bit of a guide to England. In uh, this week, he has sent in a uh, Englishman's Guide to Cricket, another of the completely fucking ununderstandable, ununderst not understandable, incomprehensible sports to the American audience. What I would like to do right now is play you that little thing. Why, hello there, and welcome to Tom's English Muffins, episode two. Cricket. Like most English of games, cricket is a game dating back to Tudor England and growing immensely popular throughout the 17th and 18th century. Originally played with a bat similar in design to a hockey stick, this bat design changed in the 1760s when bowlers began pitching the ball instead of rolling it towards the batsman. There are currently 42 laws of the game as written by the Merlebone Cricket Club, outlining aspects of how the game is played, from how a team wins, how a batsman can be dismissed, through to specifications on how a pitch is to be prepared and maintained. There are many formats of the game under two main categories of first class and limited overs cricket. First class cricket has a scheduled duration of three or more days. In England, first class cricket, as part of the LV County Championship, lasts four days. Test matches, that is, international games among the ten test playing nations of the International Cricket Committee, have a scheduled duration of five days. Each of these games must allow for two innings, with formal intervals for lunch and tea, as well as brief intervals for drinks and between innings. The rules of cricket for beginners. You have two sides, one out in the field and one in. Each man that's in the side that's in goes out and when he's out he comes in and the next man goes in until he's out. When they're all out the side that's out comes in and the side that's been in goes out and tries to get those coming in out. Sometimes you get men still in and not out. When a man goes out to go in the men who are out try to get him out and when he's out he goes in and the next man in goes out and goes in. There are two men called umpires who stay all out all the time and they decide when the men who are in are out. When both sides have been in and all the men are out and both sides have been out twice after all the men have been in including those who are not out that is the end of the game. So the in goes out and the out is lorm ipsum dolor sidamet consequitor absciated elet diem no nome ipsu Hughesum in tia dungit. All right. So the batter hits the bowler and they go out. So that's that's the the five days, and that's Deus Atum at Vel Ira Dolor and Hedriet in Volpte and Velet Essay. Molesti Consiequet. Okay, so there's a five day match. I got you. All right. So now I'm so it's five or three day, and that's what the ashes are. 
lorem ipsum doloris theta med, and that goes into the dolar, and the ipsum lorem goes out, and then when the out comes back in, that's when the consecutor ad escipian elet sit diem non nomet. Okay, got it. So lorem ipsum doloris theta med. Got it. So that's pretty much how you play cricket, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, Thomas, for, uh, for uh, I was going to say writing in, but you did send it to my email, so it's technically writing in. Alexcast at gmail.com. Spell Alex with two X's because I suck at marketing. Yes, so that is it. We are done. I want all of you to go in peace, travel in the loveliness that is the Christ energy and the Christian consciousness. I want you to understand that I just mumbled a whole bunch of names because I can't speak out loud very well and I chose a really dumb hobby to have. And that is that. I have been Alex. You have been the audience. Namaste.